check your driver's license. You're in the right room because of your age group. We're going to be in here continuing on in our uh, series through the book of James called Embodied Faith. I may or may not be pointing to the screens that don't work <laughs> during this message, just kind of a force of habit. But if you want to grab a Bible or your, your phone version of the Bible, we're just going to take a look at James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Like I mentioned before, these are the last two things that James has to say in his letter. It may very well be that he ran out of, or that he had extra space at the end of the parchment and went, oh, paper's expensive. I've got more things to say, but I've kind of said what I need to say. The last two verses kind of fit in with the rest of what James talks about, but it's also sort of a new idea, just sort of like a, oh, and one more thing, this. And it, people who study James go, uh, it's not part of the flow of thought. Like, you can connect it if you're clever about it or if you can accidentally come up with something coincidentally, but it might just be, hey, one more thing while I still have your attention, kind of a last thought. But it's a profound one. It's a useful one. And like I said before, and like I've been saying all along, it echoes the words of Jesus. So let us have ears to hear what James has to say today. He says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Not, hey, greet Euodia and Syntyche, say hi to this person because I spent some time with them. No greetings, grace and peace, signing off in the name of Jesus Christ our Savior. Just full stop. Letter kind of ends abruptly. But with some words that are valuable. They kind of read like a, in the event that this happens. In the event that your monitors go out when you're having a worship service and the words that you normally have for the songs and the scriptures and your fun pictures you like to show during your sermon. In the event that the screens go out, well, we've got the red books. We can still worship. We still have our paper Bibles. We still have our ears. We can hear the Word of God. That's what you do, like a contingency plan. I don't know if you've ever seen on the wall, there'll be, uh, in case of emergency, break the glass. Why would you break the glass in the case of emergency? To get to the fire extinguisher or to get to the, the fire hose or the axe. You recognize these things. Just in case. We have this here in, in the event that something should go wrong. Uh, I have noticed that James has said a lot of things directly. You ought to do this. You ought not to do this. This is how Christians should live. This is how Christians should not live. So kind of at the end of his letter... He puts in this contingency, like in the event that all of these things that you ought to be doing don't happen, or in the event that Christians don't behave the way that they should, this is what you ought to do. And it's what he says here. If someone should wander from the truth, and then someone, one of you, should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. This kind of echoes the passage from Jesus that we read at the communion table just a moment ago. I'll read what we have already heard, and then a few verses after that, just for context. Jesus instructs his listeners, his disciples, saying, if your brother or sister sins, and some translations say, if they sin against you, you are personally wronged or affronted, 
go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen, you have won, they, won them over. But if they will not listen, more contingency plans. If then, if this, then this. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Quoting Deuteronomy there. If, now if that doesn't work, Jesus says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two on earth agree about anything they ask for it, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Not if you've heard that last verse before. Not if you've said that last verse before when you are having a small Bible study or when you pray with someone outside of church. You hear this a lot. People say, ah, even Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I with them. That's all we need for church. It's just people gathering in the name of Jesus. Two, three, not even three, just two. Two people gathering in the name of Jesus, you can get together. Did you know that Jesus said that in the context while he was explaining what to do if someone wrongs you? If someone sins against you, he's teaching about forgiveness here. This is about going to somebody. In our breakout group over here, we were talking about like, oh, what is, what is this telling us how we ought to live? We started thinking about the opposite way that people live. If someone wrongs me, oh, what am I inclined to do? Cut them out of my life, walk away, delete them from my phone, and just be like, that person's toxic. They're bad news. Jesus says the opposite. Go to them. Try to fix it. Just, just, just between the two of you. Don't make a big public thing out of it. Don't shame them, but just say, hey, something's wrong here, and we need to reconcile. And then if that doesn't work, this. And if that doesn't work, this. But you can see that Jesus says it's important for us to be in community. If someone wanders away or if someone wrongs you, that sometimes is the end of it. And we go, well, there's nothing I can do. And Jesus and James tell us there are some things you can do and you ought to do. This kind of reminds me of a passage from Ezekiel. It's a little bit obscure, but listen to the theme of accountability that's here as well. The prophet Ezekiel, God speaks to him, kind of gives him some weird instructions that maybe we wouldn't appreciate if God said this to us because it holds him accountable. Listen to what he says. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel is saying what God said to him. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word that I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, well, that person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. What? They're the ones sinning. They're the one. I'm good. They're bad. Why am I going to be on the hook for this? God says, but if you do warn the wicked person, and they do not turn from their wickedness or their evil ways, well, they will die for, your, for their sin, but you will have saved yourself. Hmm. Again, when a righteous person turns from their unrighteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before them, they will die. Since you did not warn them, they will die for their sin. The righteous things that person did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. Does that sound unfair to anybody? Does that sound like, why am I responsible for the bad things that they are doing? If they turn their back on God, like, I mean, 
their choice. I'm not going to be up in their business about it. But God tells Ezekiel, you're going to go and tell these people that they've turned their back on me. And they're not going to change. They're going to still turn their back on me. They're going to be lost. But you, if you go and tell them, you do what I asked you to do, you're going to be saved. But if you don't tell them, they're going to be lost, and I'm going to hold you accountable too. Okay. There's an expectation of community. We see this in what God tells Ezekiel in the Old Testament prophets. We see this from the mouth of Jesus, reiterated with our brother James here, and we go, okay, maybe this is serious. Maybe we have some kind of responsibility for the people in our community who are sinning, who are wandering away from the truth, as James puts it, somebody who were following Jesus, and they went, no, I don't, I don't know. I want to follow myself. I want to follow something else. I don't want to be on the path anymore for whatever reason. They're saying, there's something that you can do to be involved there, and God expects us to do this. We ought to do it, and maybe we can hear all these and go, okay, they make a pretty strong case. I think we are to be responsible. But we often don't do it, and we have to face some of the reasons why we don't. I think some of us have been in church for a long time and remember a time when the church was pretty heavy-handed about accountability. Maybe you've experienced a church that micromanaged people's lives and were often all up in folks' business, brought things publicly that maybe should have gone just one or two, go and talk to them, go and reconcile them, and it turned people away from church and said, if that's the game you're playing, I don't want anything to do with it. And maybe we are reacting from a time when the church was not being merciful, gentle, humble, kind. They were really hardcore about the truth, and they were trying to honor God and trying to do the best that they could, but maybe it just scared a lot of people away, turned a lot of people away, and the reaction now is, okay, we don't want to be that church. We don't want to be as heavy-handed as it's been in the past, but maybe we've gone too far in the other direction. Maybe we're just like, I'll walk my walk, you walk your walk, and if you need something, I'll be over here. But that's not exactly what Jesus calls us to. Another reason that we don't call somebody out if we see something or check in with somebody who maybe seems to have wandered away from the truth uh, is because it's awkward. That's going to be an awkward conversation to have with somebody. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of an intervention. If somebody is behaving in a destructive way, often with like drugs and alcohol, their friends and family get together and they say, all right, this is bad for us, it's bad for them, we care about them so much that we are willing to have a scheduled, intentional, awkward conversation where we all gather around and say, you can't live like this. This is not good for you, it's not good for anyone. We really want you to change. I've never been interventioned before by my friends and family. But I can imagine it would be very jarring. It would be very embarrassing. There's an a actor, comedian named John Mulaney who uh, went through a cocaine addiction and then he took a lot of his experiences from that and turned it into some of his stand-up material. He's very open now about where he was at with his drug abuse and he describes an intervention that he was a part of. And he said, just like anybody who gets an intervention sprung on them, he was angry, and he felt betrayed, and he wanted to throw it back in other people's faces. He's a professional comedian, and so a lot of the people that were there, his closest friends, were comedians as well. And he said, there's nothing less funny 
than the funniest comedians in the world not being funny. Just showing up and saying, we're not going to do what we do well. Instead, we're going to have a hard conversation with our friend because you need it. He said in his intervention, they invited him in and told him he was going to have dinner. They sort of tricked him. They had him sit down, and they took his shoes away. It was wintertime. He was a cocaine addict. And they took his shoes away, and they often do that in intervention, so that the person doesn't immediately see, oh, you're all here to tell me what to do. You're all here to say how much better than you are than me and put me in my place. I'm out of here. They took his shoes away from him so that he wouldn't bolt. Sometimes that's what it takes. But what I'm describing here is a very awkward kind of situation that most of us would probably prefer to avoid. And we're not necessarily even talking about cocaine addiction or something as destructive and obvious of a misstep that causes people to come around you and say, you got to change. Sometimes it's just, I don't know, you're not following Jesus anymore or in the way that he calls us to. You're missing something. And I just want to check in with you and see if it's okay. Even on that scale, it can be very awkward. So we sometimes avoid it. We lean more toward passages and teachings of Jesus like, ah, judge not, lest you be judged. Don't take the speck out of somebody else's eye when you have a big plank of wood in your own eye. Don't be a hypocrite. We camp out there and say, eh, I don't want to I want to tell people what to do. I don't want to make it seem like I have it figured out and you don't. I want to put myself in this position of authority. So meh, we'll just we'll see what happens. They wandered away. Maybe they'll wander back. Those are some of the reasons we don't. But we can't avoid Jesus saying, you ought to. A good shepherd cares about his sheep. He's willing to leave the 99 and go after the one lost sheep and, and, and bring them back, restore them, show them Love, it's inspiring. We could be doing this, we just sometimes don't. I'll tell you a story that I heard about. Uh, Korean Air, flight number 801, back in 1997. It was coming in for a landing in Guam, and it was bad weather, limited visibility, and uh, the pilot was communicating with the co-pilot and uh, the co-pilot was making subtle comments like, ooh, I don't know, I think we're coming in a little too low. Uh, I think you're not reading the instruments right. And the pilot said, nope, don't worry about it, I got this. I've been flying for years. I'm the veteran, you're the co-pilot, I've got this. We got closer and closer to the runway, closer and closer to the ground, coming in at the wrong angle. The weather was messing with their ability to determine how it was going. Another subtle comment, I don't know, you may want to check that uh, altimeter, you may want to check in with the tower, it's not looking good. Yeah, 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 I got it, I got it. The pilot crashed the plane into the ground, and 230 people died. And they did an investigation after in this flight, like, what went wrong? Could we have avoided this? Well, the weather, you got to fly in bad weather. Um, it was a unique situation. Maybe they weren't as familiar with the route. They, they investigated all different factors, but what they determined was the main cause of the crash of Korean Air Flight 801. Mitigated speech. That was the main cause of the crash. Mitigated speech. What that means was the co-pilot should have been saying, 
We're about to crash. Let me take over. Circle. Go back around. This is going to be a disaster. But instead he said, "Mm, I'm not so sure. And they did research and said part of it was the culture of the airline. Part of it was just the fact that they had developed this system where the the pilot was the one in charge. The co-pilot was learning. The co-pilot's there to help and read me some readings and go get me some coffee and this kind of thing. But there was not equality. It wasn't like, I'm going to listen to you. You might have something to say. It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was kind of culture-wide. If the speech hadn't been mitigated, if it wasn't expressed as like a, maybe we should be concerned about this. If it was more of a, this is life or death. This is an emergency. I need to speak up and say something, and you need to listen. Does it remind you of an intervention? Now, we've got to address this. I think that can be missing in the church community. Showing someone that you care enough to say, you may hate me. You may want to bolt. This may be awkward, but it's necessary. It is a matter of life or death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without contrition. James is reminding us of that. What does that look like in our community? Have we, have we mitigated our speech for too long? Are there things that need to be said? Again, in love. Maybe between two people at first. But have they gone overlooked because we're like, eh, I don't know. I'm not so sure about this. The last time I was a counselor at Adventure Camp down at Camp uh, Daybreak, I was with a co-cabin leader, and we had a cabin full of, I think it was nine-year-old boys. They were rowdy. It was fun, but it was exhausting. And the last night in the cabin, like everybody's packing up because we're going to leave tomorrow. We're kind of getting them settled down. I'm like, oh, this has been a long week. I'm kind of ready, <laughs> ready to go home. My co-cabin leader walks into the cabin and goes like, hey, I got you guys this. And he has a bag from Safeway, and inside is cans of Silly String. Just a big old bag full of Silly strings. Like, I got this. Here you go. And he gives a can of Silly String to every nine-year-old boy in the cabin right before bedtime, and they did exactly what you would expect them to do, what he encouraged them to do, which I would not have recommended anyone ever do on the last night of camp at Adventure Camp. They went crazy. And they sprayed each other. And they sprayed the walls. And they sprayed their sleeping bags. And they sprayed me. And they sprayed my cabin leader. And I went, oh, what a mess. When you hear a preacher get up and say, you know what we need in our church? There's maybe more people getting in each other's business. Maybe we need more rebuking. Maybe we need more calling people back to the way of Christ who have wandered away. You might go, Jacob, that's going to be a mess. You're handing full cans of silly string to a bunch of flawed, imperfect people. That's going to be a disaster. And you might be right. (laughs) Maybe that's another one of the reasons we tend to avoid this. But it doesn't have to be that way. I think if we're doing what Jesus calls us to, in a way that Jesus calls us to, in the shadow of the cross, with humility, knowing that I'm not saying this because I'm perfect and you need to be more like me, but I'm just saying this because I care. 
because we're hearing the same Christ. We both signed on to follow the same Jesus. Let's, let's find our way back together. James says that does something. It turns a sinner from the error of their ways. It saves them from death, and it covers a multitude of sins. And I think that just might be worth speaking up for. Again, we're not always going to get this right. It's not always going to be perfect, but it's something we're called to do. This last Wednesday night in our teen gathering, Brittany led us in a very cool, very powerful uh, series of prayer stations. And one of the prayer stations, which I was really proud of the students for taking seriously, was a station that asked them to do a little bit of a a self-rebuke, to like open themselves up to some self-criticism about, all right, think about your life. The lesson was about being generous with your love and your, your time for people. And it asked the question, okay, what is it in your life that keeps you from showing people the care that they deserve, from being connected with people in community? And you can guess a lot of them said, my screens, I'm on my phone so much, it's on my AP work, my, my schedule, I'm, just, I'm so busy, I don't remember to be present with people and make time for them. It was neat. I've got, I've got them saved. Uh, ask me and I can show you uh, some of the mature responses that these students came up with. The second thing said, okay, what's one thing in your life that if you stop doing, it would open up more of a possibility for you to show care and concern for people more intentionally? You can create that room in your life that you need to help them be accountable, to, to invite them to a relationship of accountability. And, you know, they said things like not watching Netflix, so much, not spending so much time on my screens. Uh, they, they examined their lives and they said, yeah, you know what? This would help. This would help me be where the Lord wants me to be. I said, I was really proud of them. You know, they could go, I don't know, or they go to the next prayer station or something, but they did a really intentional self-examination. And that's what I want to invite all of us to do today. Maybe you're already thinking about this. Uh, fill in the blank. I have it written down. It would have been up here. What are you going to (laughs) do? How would you complete this sentence or begin this sentence? Blank keeps me from seeing what other people need. What is in your life that just keeps you from, I don't even know where someone is at. I don't know what they need. How would I, why is that any of my business? Blank keeps me from seeing what other people need. And then the second one, stopping blank will help me care for others more. I want you to think about it, and I'm going to invite you to turn and just share this with somebody next to you, to the uh, length that you are comfortable doing so. This is, this is an exercise in helping us be ready for receiving rebuke. If someone's like, hey, I just, you may not want to hear this, but I want to call you back because I care about you. If we're going to be like John Mulaney and go, I'm not ready for the, you guys are the worst, I'm out of here. What if we practice doing this to ourselves? And, and, and so if someone calls us and says, hey, this, this way of living is not really the way of Jesus. You can go, ah, I know. I've been thinking that myself. I'm glad you said something. I appreciate you coming to me and sharing this. So here it comes again. How would you uh, complete or begin these sentences and then take a couple minutes to talk to each other and share this with one another and then we'll invite Jonathan back up here to lead us in our last song. Blank keeps me from seeing what other people need. And, number two, stopping blank will help me care 
for other people more. Take three or four minutes. Talk about that with the people around you, uh, or the people at home that you're worshiping with. Uh, if you want to, you can even online people, you can share it in the chat. Uh, we'll be praying for you guys throughout this week. But once four minutes or so are up, you'll know it's time to sing when the praise team comes back up here and we'll join in together. Ready? Discuss. <laughs> 